You are listening to the Tudor History and Travel Show, Travel Essentials, the place to be for all the best top tips and inspiration for planning your Tudor adventures. So, let's get ready to hit the road with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide. Hello my friends, it's Sarah here, the Tudor Travel Guide, and as ever, welcome this time to this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show, Travel Essentials. This show is for those of you out there who are not just content to read about your Tudor history, but long to hit the road and touch Tudor history for yourself. And if that is you, my friends, then you are in the right place, because along with my other fellow bloggers and Tudor time travellers, we're going to bring you all the top tips for about how to get around the UK, how to navigate British culture, where to go, what to see. The answers are all here. Now, in today's episode, I'm going to be, as usual, chatting with my dear friend Philippa Brawl of British History Tours, and we are going to be uh, tackling the issue of transport, different types of transport, the pros and cons, how to get around, and some of the vernacular that we use to describe our different modes of transport, which may be a little bit different to what those of you who live overseas are used to. And then I'm also going to be talking to Tony Riches. Tony Riches is, of course, a well-known author of historical fiction, and he is going to be sharing with us some of one of, I should say, his favourite places to go and see and maybe even stay. Let's see what Tony has to tell us. And then finally, of course, as ever, at the end of the show, I'll be sharing with you a couple of events, Tudor-themed events that you might like to get involved with. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, let's get straight over and dive into the conversation with Philippa. And as I say, it's all about travel and modes of transport today. So let's get going. Hello, Philippa. Welcome back to the show. Lovely to see you again and to hear yeah. you, of course. Hi, Sarah. Thank you. Yes. And uh, hi, everybody. So we're, we're recording this on Zoom, so I have the chance to look at Philippa, but of course you guys are just listening to the audio and we are back for another episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show, Travel Essentials, where hopefully we will answer some of your most pressing questions about coming here, particularly for those of you who live overseas, coming here and visiting the UK, what to do and what to look out for. So, Philippa, what have you been up to this week before we dive into the subject of the day? Oh, well, this week, this past week, I have been out and about. I went up to Tutbury Castle, um, which is in the Midlands. And it's uh, an amazing castle with an extremely long history. It's quite off the beaten track. So um, I think it, you can go one day and there's loads of people and you go another day and it's totally empty. It, it, it's it's kind of one of those, if you know about it, you, you go. Um, and I was there with the curator, Leslie Smith, and it was just a fabulous day so it's nice to have been out and about a little bit mm, yes I think you had uh, quite a misty day I remember seeing your social media posts enshrouded sort of the castle in the background enshrouded by mist it looked all very atmospheric it, it was atmospheric it wasn't great for taking any pictures of the fantastic views you can get from up there unfortunately <laughs> but yes yeah, some atmospheric uh, photos were were uh, were taken 
And it's really weird because the very same day I was down at Hampton Court looking at the Golden Glory exhibition and it was just glorious blue sky when I arrived. And that's, I mean, we're talking only, what, an hour and a half, maybe two hours distance. So you get completely different weather, don't you, on this strange island of ours? We do. You have to be prepared for all sorts. As we keep reminding everybody. (laughs) And ourselves, because, you know, we live here and can still get caught out. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, let's talk about the topic of the day. What are we going to cover today? Well, we thought we'd have a look at the main ways of getting around um, in the UK and talk to you about the benefits of each way and just things to look out for and things that can help you plan your travel if you're coming here. Yeah, I mean, because it's your travel is obviously, you know, it's uh, where do I go and how do I get there? Got to be the two the questions at the top of everybody's list when they're particularly when they're unfamiliar with the UK. And I think we're going to tackle this by, as ever, sort of talking about the capital London first because it's slightly unique, and then maybe widening our vision out to encompass the rest of the UK and share some of our personal experiences, no doubt, along the way uh, of, of how we get around. So uh, where should we start? Well, yeah, so let's start with London, because I think most people come into London, even if their intention is then to go further afield. Um and you've got lots of different choices of how to get around London. Um, the the tube or underground being um, a main one that people are familiar with, especially if you're coming from other major cities that have a similar um, network. Um, and um, you've got so you've got the tube. We do have buses. We've spoken about buses um, before. The only thing about buses in the UK, and this doesn't really matter whether you're in London or outside, is you kind of already have to know where you're going and where you want to get off. So we might go into that in a bit more yeah. detail. Um, but one thing to consider if you're coming to London, especially as a Tudor fan, because you may well be wanting to go to somewhere like Greenwich, which is a little further out, um, is to consider the Clipper. And again, I think we've spoken about the Clipper before because it's one of our joint favourite ways of getting around London because it's on the river. And the Clipper is, in fact, the commuter boat. So it's quicker as well. You can get pleasure boats, but the Clipper, if you're actually just trying to get from a place to a place, definitely consider the Clipper. It's pleasant. It's usually less busy as well. It's definitely not as crowded as something like the Tube. And you're following the route that the Tudors did when they were travelling around uh, London, well, the the nobility and the royalty anyway. (laughs) Um, You know, so you're getting a view of London, not exactly the Tudors have seen, of course, but you are following in their watery footsteps um, and getting a lovely view of London uh, as well. So I wonder if maybe we could take each of those in turn and maybe just uh, chat a little bit about them and our experiences of them. And I was also thinking perhaps we should also introduce the just the notion, of course, the Heathrow Express and the Gatwick Express, because many people, obviously, if you're coming from overseas, you're going to probably be arriving at one of those two airports. So um, I think just to mention that there, there is there are these express, the, the railways um, that link the airports directly into central London. And I'm trying to remember, Philippa, where the Heathrow Express goes into and where the Gatwick, I think Gatwick Express goes into Victoria and, and Heathrow Express goes into the west of London, I imagine. 
Yeah, so um, I think the Gatwick Express is an overground train. It's your your normal, if you like, type train, and the Heathrow is it has it it does go into the underground system. Um, both are fairly frequent, and um, you can if you organise that beforehand as well. Then I, I don't think it's a much of a of a problem if you organise it as you get here, but you can obviously look on the um, TFL Transport for London uh, website to have a look at details of that if you want to sort of familiarize yourself before you um before you come here there is something called um a, a brit rail pass which apparently does include airport transfers but not the tube so that must only be uh, for overground trains from heathrow or, or gatwick but that's um, potentially worth having a look into if you think you're going to be using the railway to come out of london as well during your uh, your time yeah, so so we're kind of moving into the tube and the or the underground. Either of those are, are words that we might use, right? Yeah, exactly. So we did thought think maybe we should um, just do a little bit of vernacular, just in case um, people aren't familiar. Because uh, so we've done the the over uh, sorry underground and the tube. So we, we use those um, interchangeably now for the underground system. Um, and we've already quickly mentioned buses. Now, our buses and our coaches are very distinct from each other. So a bus would be like a local route within a city, perhaps from a city to a village, but, you know, within a particular area. A coach um, is generally a, a much longer distance. So you might use one of these instead of a, a train ride, for instance, to go from London to York or even further. You know, they do they do long routes and that would be coach travel. So we, we have that quite distinct here. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, we do. Very distinct. And I think that's different terminology than perhaps some people might be used to from from overseas. Now, the now the big debate for me always when I come into London is whether to get around London on the tube or whether to get a taxi. Now, my, I come in from Oxfordshire, so I jump on the train and I, I go into Marylebone Station. Uh, there are several main stations in London, Victoria, Marylebone, Paddington, Waterloo. I can't think there's, oh, there's also, I think, up at, Houston. Um, sorry, say that again. Houston. Houston. Um, and so um, then I generally, particularly if I'm feeling a bit flush, will jump in a taxi because outside, of course, most of the large London stations, there will be taxi ranks. Uh, by the way, that's not always true if you're using trains outside of London. Some of the trains can take you into sometimes quite rural parts and you don't necessarily expect to find a taxi rank waiting there so if you if you are heading out of london just just check and you're intending to get a taxi when you get to the other end just check that there is actually a rank otherwise you might need to book in advance anyway i like using the taxi because it's overland i can i'm nosy i can see what's going on you can take in the sights of london um but of course two big drawbacks it's pretty expensive. Although I was in London recently and I did my usual west to east across London towards the city. And it wasn't as expensive as it was pre-COVID, which really surprised me. And I don't know whether that was just that day. Um, I don't know, but that was quite interesting. But generally speaking, you want to go from the west to the east on a normal day. There can be quite a lot of traffic. You can be sitting in traffic quite a lot. And it could 
it could take you what I don't know three quarters of an hour an hour I've easily sat for an hour trying to get across the whole of London and that's quite a hefty cab fare of of well over sort of 60 70 pounds if you do that um Hopefully, days where it's less busy, traffic's moving more. Maybe you're not going quite so far from west to east. It might be around £35 to get from sort of Paddington Station over to like the Tower of London, which is what I was doing. Yeah. So, I mean, taxis or I suppose cabs, we don't generally call them a cab, we call them a taxi, but people might know them as cabs, charge. If you pick up a black taxi, a black cab, they charge by the the minute. You could book uber which i believe you know you they they quote and you pay for your journey in advance so if you you know you're concerned about that um that might be a, a way to do it and then and then you can still have the taxi experience um but yeah i mean that's it's one of the nice ways to get around but you, you you've got to pay for it the tube is generally considered the least nice way of getting around. I mean, I, I actually don't really have um, much of a, a problem with it, although I do go over ground as much as I, I can, just because that's how you see the, you know, that's how you're going to see everything. But we've got some really old tube lines. So if you are coming as a bit of a history buff, you know, you're going to actually enjoy the experience of being on something like the Bakerloo line um, with the tiled walls and and you know everything, There's, it's very Victoriana, isn't it? Ed, Edwardian Victoriana. It's it's quite they're museum pieces, some of them, which they really are, yeah. Which which can go against it in very hot weather. So I would warn you guys that if you're used to beautifully air conditioning modern <laughs> carriages, you won't find that universally across the London Underground. You won't. Definitely take a bottle of water with you. And in fact, in the summer, you'll notice they have plenty of signs reminding people to take water with them because it can get very stuffy down there. Um, I mean, at the moment, it's quite empty. Uh, I have to say, I was down there uh, a couple of weeks ago and it was quite empty, but that obviously will change once everything's opened up. So yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing to mention is uh, about the tube, especially, is the map is all, um, it, it's not directly um, representative of what is above ground. So you might find, just check check against your map as well, your above ground map, because you could be closer than you think. And it might just be worth a walk. And of course, like if you take a taxi ride, if you walk, you're going to see more as well. It's not like you can go far in London without, you know, bumping into something of interest. So have a look at your overground, you know, your normal map as well and see if potentially you would um, it would be worth a walk. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And it's a lovely it's a lovely way to get around on a on a fine day. And before we move on, I did just want to come back to the taxi thing. And maybe actually this is a topic that we could just touch on more generally. And that's the issue of safety. Mm-hmm. How safe do you feel on a cab or the underground, etc? Um, I know that's a question that does come up for people. And I, from a from a taxi point of view, this is why I like using the black cabs. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'm a little more old fashioned, but I think most you know black the black cabbies have to go under undergo rigorous training, and um, I always feel safe in a black cab. I, I not necessarily feel as safe in an Uber, but I think that's something's probably an issue that's that's kind of global, not just pertaining to London. Mm. And the underground generally I feel safe, but sometimes I don't know, there's obviously some quirky, dodgy characters loitering around. 
it's more bumping into rude people on the tube, I think, than unsafe people. That's that's. I mean, that's been my experience um, as a single female traveller a lot of the time. Is is more that I'm going to be a f- <laughs> find myself jostled as opposed to you know mm. um, anyone being sort of out of order in a criminal fashion. But just make sure you don't just have your backpack hanging off your bag. I mean, one, people find that rude. They don't like it if you're on the underground and it's busy and you're twisting and turning around and smacking people with your backpack. And from a safety point of view, just shove it around the front or whatever bags you're carrying, just keep them as close to you as as possible. And then, um, yeah, you won't cause um, too much friction with your fellow passengers. And I think safety overall, I would say that London is a safer city as anywhere. I never feel unsafe in the centre of London. I wouldn't tend to stray certainly on my own into some of the suburbs that are further out, but that's largely because I just don't know them. Um, but I think I, I always feel completely safe when I'm in, in the centre of London. I don't know about you, Philippa, what's your feelings about that? Yeah, I, I, I feel safe too. The only place that caught me by surprise once and not in a safety point of view it's just I expected it to be busier in the evening than it was is the actual city of London so this is where you've got the Tower of London and St Paul's it's not got a nightlife um as such you know there aren't as many um bars and restaurants as you might find in in slightly going back into sort of the Westminster direction um certainly not the theatre you know it's not as busy as the theatre district um so it just caught me by surprise how on my own I was I was waiting to go into the Tower of London for the ceremony of the keys, which began, I think, at about 9 or 10 p.m. I can't remember exactly. And I was on my own waiting outside the Tower of London. So that's the only time. But really, I I, I haven't felt unsafe down there. Just keep your wits about you exactly the same as you should do wherever you are um, if you're on your own. Yeah. Okay, have we covered most of the sort of transport aspects of London? Should we maybe branch out and talk about getting around the UK? Yes, let's get out of London. (laughs) Why not? This is always my favourite thing to do. I must admit, I do love popping into London, but I'm always more than happy to be sitting on the train and and, and sort of the bustle of it just fading into the background as I head back out to the countryside. So I'm already feeling more calm as we talk about this. (laughs) <laughs> I'm really happy when people want to venture outside of London as well, because it is not representative of the rest of the country. It's It's got a different atmosphere, culture, energy level. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's it's nice when people say, I'm, I'm going to go to somewhere else. I go, yes, great. And um, so how to get there. Now, this is where we've got a few options. And again, there's pros and cons with them all. I've mentioned already about our coaches. So if you want a cheap way of getting out um, of London and you're going further afield, um, you could uh, look at something like a National Express or Megabus coach. They're they're relatively cheap, but they will take obviously a long time because one thing to mention, we're a small country, but please don't let that fool you in terms of travel times. We take much longer to get around it than um, than, than you might expect if you're coming from the States or, or even Europe. And, you know, it's quicker to get around when I was interrailing in Europe than it can be getting around in the UK especially if you are doing something that's um, on our road, so getting a coach or a car. 
And so, for instance, I had a look at uh, train times between London and York, for instance, and it takes two and a half hours on a train. If you were going to get the coach, it's a fraction of the price, but it's going to take six and a half hours. Mm -hmm. It's going to take the best part of your day. Um, And I know people do like to do York and and particularly think about doing York and heading on to Scotland. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're wanting to do that and you've got time and your budget might be a bit more tight, then consider a coach but but you might want to do trains if your if your time is a little bit tighter and, and you don't have to watch the pennies quite so much yeah yeah absolutely and um I suppose the coaches are going to go on the main a lot of the main routes I suppose you're not going to get you're not going to get a coach that takes you into sort of deep into the countryside into some of towards some of the properties that's when you'd have to you'd probably go to a, cent, a more central hub and then change to a local bus that you were talking about earlier Philippa and that's how you'd get closer to where you needed to go if, if it was particularly rural. Yes, exactly and we have destination management organisations um, so you can have a you know get in touch with them just google where you're going and have a look for their destination management organizations have some for instance Stratford upon Avon you've got visit Shakespeare's England which deal with that area and they will have information about more of the local travel routes or if you also have a particular location or you know property like you said that you want to go to they will have a how to get to us or how to find us um, section on their website which will give you details of the local transport links as well yeah I must admit buses coaches oh I get terribly travel sick so um, that's not for me because can be a lot of twisting and turning and stopping and starting so if I'm tra- if if I'm not driving and driving is definitely my preferred way. I'm sure we'll come on to that in a moment. Definitely, I would choose train. You can just sit back and relax, enjoy the scenery, and um, yeah, that would be and it's quicker, of course. As it's quicker, and like you say, you can actually enjoy the scenery. Our train lines um, go through some of the best scenery. Yeah, so and I'm thinking particularly the northeast train line beyond Durham going up to Edinburgh you're running parallel with the coast so uh, you get to see Durham Cathedral at a distance although you really if you're getting that close to Durham you really need to stop Um, but um, that's a that's a particularly beautiful train line yeah so I'm quite fond of our train system it's not bad at all no no and and you can book your seats um you know you've got apps I think all of our um, train companies now have got an app so you can look at the timetable in real time and and get your tickets um, and book your seats um, so and things like that. And it might be worth also saying that for the long distance mainline journeys like London to Edinburgh, you get the the fast trains and then there's a whole class of different trains for sort of local travel between within areas and they tend to kind of stop a lot. <laughs> so they're going to, you know, they're going to wind their way there a bit more slowly. Um, but your sort of your mainline trains, so trains running out of London towards Bristol and the south of Wales, that's the kind of main um, east-west connection for the railways. And then north, north, south is is the main one is going to be uh, London up to York, Durham, Edinburgh. But of course, you've got um, connections to Birmingham and Manchester as well if you're heading up to the northwest. Yeah, so have a look on something like Trainline to get an idea of what the route would be as well and expect to probably make at least one or two changes, especially, Mm. unfortunately, if you're going 
like you say, from the east to the west. Your first part of your journey might be quite simple, and then and then you're probably going to have to change lines. Um, yes, it's 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 well known, isn't it, in the UK? I mean, we we as UK citizens bemoan the fact that if you need to travel between Cambridge and Oxford just dig in for a long journey because our infrastructure connecting sort of east and west, anything above that London to Bristol line is absolutely, it's pretty appalling really, perhaps with the exception of Leeds to Manchester, which is quite straightforward. But yeah, it's not good. So yeah, Yeah. east to west can be more tricky than north to south. That's the takeaway here. Uh, Anything else we need to say about, we haven't haven't talked about kind of cars and driving and so that was yes i thought that that's where we could probably um go to next because ultimately if you have the use of a car if you've hired one or you've hired someone to take you around then you're going to get to the places that that you might just not be able to get to without that and of course being um the type of country we are we have a lot of places that are in the countryside these are the places you're going to want to go and see mm. as well if you're getting out of London and, and a car really does make that so much easier yeah um, it absolutely does you're so much you're you're more flexible and it often means that you can more easily fit in two locations I think in one day there have been many a times where I've said let's do in the morning and then we can jump in the car and we can do in the afternoon um and you you would probably struggle to do that i think if you're trying to do that on public transport don't you think i think you would because and you're going to be stuck to particular times because obviously you've got to be there when the train goes or the coach goes or the bus goes and yeah that takes the the free flow enjoyment out of a visit um i think and like you say you can double up very easily um locations in a day if you've got a car, for instance, I mean, we met at Sudley Castle not too long ago and did Hales Abbey, which is down the road. Easy with a car. You couldn't do it without one, though. And no, it's you really couldn't. Um, so I think I think we're both on the same um, thought process here. If you have, you know, if you, if you can get the, if you're not bothered about driving on the wrong side of the road or, you know, driving in a, in a different country, then I think hiring a car is definitely, definitely worth considering. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just say, uh, as somebody who has driven in Europe a lot, i.e. that's the wrong side of the road to us, yeah. they're driving on the right, not the left. Um, I always find it a little bit intimidating for the first like five or 10 minutes. And often what I do is drive around the car park. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to get to grips with the car and reminding myself where I am and I've got to be on the right side of the road. But I find literally within like half an hour, I've completely adapted and and um, far more quickly than I ever think. I'm just driving quite naturally on the other side of the road. You do have to kind of keep your wits about you and not, you know, to remember how to get round a roundabout, et cetera. But it becomes very natural quite quickly. And so I'm, I'm saying that for those of you who, who really have gone, oh, no, I just just can't do it do think about it because you will gain so much and um yeah just have a practice around the car park before you leave (laughs) it's worth mentioning roundabouts actually because um they're not we use them a lot on our road network um and they can be a bit sort of daunting if if it's not something you're used to um but just take it steady go with the flow yeah, um, maybe watch a few YouTube videos on how to drive around roundabouts before you go. <laughs> I don't know. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and the other thing to mention is that our motorway network is um, slightly different, I think, to highways in the in the US. It's been a while since I was in the US, but I believe that the middle lane is the driving lane in the US and, and, and the outer lanes, the overtaking lanes. For us, the inside lane is the driving lane and the outer two are overtaking lanes. So uh, we don't like middle lane hoggers. So just Well, fiddle dee dee. I didn't know that. That's quite, that's quite a, well, I've learned something today. But yeah, that's absolutely right. We really don't like people who hog the middle lane. Oh, if you go and drive down the middle of the road, you will get people overtaking you and giving you Paddington stairs and if you don't know what Paddington stare is then you're gonna to have to read the book um but you know and uh, or just getting generally really annoyed with you so in fact this this might be a good time to wrap up today's conversation because I we can introduce next month's uh topic of conversation which is going to be a lot of fun because it's all about Britishness it's all about what makes us kind of British some of our quirks mm-hmm. and if you love Britain, England, England in particular, because obviously there's two English ladies talking to you here, and uh, you want to fit in with the Brits when you come over, then you really do need to tune in to next month's episode where Philippa and I will have a lot of fun telling you about the things you absolutely must do, or at least consider doing, at least some of them, if you really want to get a slice of how to be British. So what do you think, Philippa? Are you looking forward to that? I am looking forward to that one. I think that'll be a lot of fun. It's quite nice sometimes to put a little bit of a mirror up to our Britishness and our quirks. Um, and, uh, and when when we're recommending things to do to make you feel like you fit in, then I think we're, we're, I think we're going to have a lot of fun with that one. Okay, so I am really looking forward to that. So I hope, guys, you can all tune in and catch up with Philippa and I next month. So until then, Philippa, uh, I'll see you next month. See you next month. Bye. Before we go any further, if you enjoy these podcasts, did you know that you can support my work by becoming a patron of the show for as little as $1 a month? A link to find out more about this program and the different levels of sponsorship available is included in the description associated with this podcast. And while I can't thank you in person, here's a big Mwah. to say a massive thank you from me. So, Now it's back to the show. So I hope you've been inspired and learned a little bit more about some of the options that might be available for you to get around here in the UK, whether you're traveling in the city or indeed further afield. So as ever, it's a huge thanks from me to Philippa for helping me out with that chat. And now we turn our attention, of course, to our special guest of the day. And today, as I mentioned at the top of this program, it's the well-known author of historical fiction, Tony Riches. So let's go over and join the conversation and let Tony introduce himself. Okay, so let's go. Hello, Tony. Lovely to speak to you again. Hello. Yes, this is. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a little while, haven't we? It hasn't it since. Oh, God, I can't get my words out today. You know, I'm, I'm tripping over my words left, right and centre. It must be too early in the morning. Well, anyway, it's been a while since we've spoken, haven't, hasn't it? When I agreed to do this, uh, July seemed like an eternity away and you blink your eyes and here it is. So <laughs> I think yeah, that's a good thing. I think it is too. Uh, so, look, I promised uh, our listeners that you would say a little bit more about yourself. I've, I've, I've introduced you, of course, as an author of um, historical fiction, but maybe you want to say a little bit more about your writing and the books that you've written. 
Yes, thank you. Well, I'm Tony Riches and I'm a full-time author living in Tudor, Wales in Pembrokeshire. And I was born in Pembroke, which of course is the birthplace of Henry VII. Mm. And that's where my interest in the Tudors came from. And I began researching for a book on Henry VII. And then I realised I had enough material for three books at least. (laughs) And there was very little historical fiction about Henry VII, which was really well researched. They all Mm. fell into the stereotype. So I decided to tell the entire story of the Tudors, rather ambitious, from the first meeting of Owen Tudor with Queen Catherine of Valois, right through to the the death of Elizabeth I. And that's turned into two trilogies. And I'm on my way to doing a third, because the the first one goes up to the end of Henry, Henry Mm. VII. Mm-hmm. The second one is, I call it the Brandon Trilogy, because it focuses on Henry VIII's uh, youngest sister, and then she marries Charles Brandon, then when she dies, he marries Catherine Willoughby, so that was great for a trilogy. And now I'm working on, um, which one of the most fascinating ones, I think, which is the amazing reign of Elizabeth I. And I've decided to deal with that through the eyes of her favourites. So I've already published um, Drake and Essex. Yeah. I'm now working on the third one, which is about a chap called Walter Raleigh. And so much has been written about Raleigh that uh, I'm enjoying trying to find a new angle on him. And each of them sees a different facet of Elizabeth. And it's only by reading all of the books that you get the fully rounded picture of what a complex woman she really was. How fascinating. I mean, I think that's an amazing undertaking, Tony, to be able to follow the Tudors from beginning to the end. I have the same ambition to do that through places. Uh, So you're well Mm -hmm. ahead of me. And I think that must be what a fascinating journey for you as well. I'm sure you learned a lot along the way. There's a link because um, I really love to visit every location even if like um, Westhorpe which was Charles Brandon's house all there is is the footprint of it I love to stand there and just get a sense of the geography and the place and I feel this huge connection you know mm, and <laughs> um, that's that's where today's talk about Windsor Castle comes in because quite a few of my books are set in Windsor Castle And it's only by standing in the actual room, which I find amazing that I can even do that, that you get a real, you can almost hear their voices echoing. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. We need to stand together someday, Tony, in some yes, room or in, in front of some earthworks somewhere and just, you know, do that thing. I look forward to it. <laughs> Now, listen, um, you have kindly come here to um, share with us as you just mentioned, one of your kind of favourite places to visit and your kind of top tips for visiting. And you mentioned that was Windsor Castle. So maybe you could kick off and tell us a little bit about why that's so special to you and why you've chosen to talk about it today. Yes, of course. Well, um, most people probably realise that that Windsor Castle was established by William the Conqueror. And it is actually the oldest and biggest occupied castle in the world and it's been in pretty much continuous occupation and something like nearly a hundred people live there and it's in Berkshire uh, 25 miles west of London so 
it's just such an amazing place uh, that if you haven't visited it, then I guarantee that you will find that every minute there is really worthwhile. It's, an inc- it's unique, actually, really, isn't it, um, for the fact that it it is its footprint is so well preserved from the time, actually, almost that it was built. And although the interiors have changed from the, the, the 16th century, as you pointed out, you can still go and stand in the same, some of the yeah, same rooms yeah. that were used, and that's very special. When you look at the really old um, sketches of the skyline of Windsor Castle, uh, you can still recognise many of the features. Yeah. So, as you say, you know, everybody, uh, including our present-day Queen, has had a go at um, tweaking it for their own particular needs, um, starting very much with Henry II and right through Charles and Victoria did quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, um, our own Queen had to deal with the fact that it Half of it was burnt down. Oh, of course, so, what a uh, terrible night that was. We all remember well, that, don't we? Shocking, absolutely. One of those things that once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. But <laughs> you know, that was 1992. I can't believe that. It is incredible. Um, and when you go now, they've done such a good job, haven't well, they, on restoring you know, it? Personally, I think it's better, having been there before and afterwards. I wasn't there during, but um, <laughs> it's it's better. It's better in lots of. It's fresher. It gives us a better sense of what it was actually like when people were living there. You know, mm. it doesn't well, hasn't got that sort of faded, fusty look. No, I agree with you. Apartments. They look yeah. fresh. The gilding and everything is all new. Still, I say new, um, but it's it's starting to be very hard to tell what's original and what isn't because it's yeah. the patina has started to sort itself out. Yeah. So what's your favourite place? What are some of your favourite rooms or features well, or th- um, within the castle? Without question, uh, St George's Chapel. Uh, anybody that visits Windsor Castle and doesn't spend most of their time in St George's Chapel is missing out. Uh, I went there originally because I was writing about a chap called Charles Brandon, um, best friend of Henry VIII arguably his only true friend. And um, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, most people have seen the inside of St. George's Chapel on televised events, like uh, fairly recently um, the wedding of Harry and Meghan, and then, of course, the funeral of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. But how many people realise that Harry and Meghan actually walked over the tomb of Henry VIII and Jane Seymour and Charles I um, as they walked up the choir. You know, it's, that's that's just amazing. And I think there's a, at least 10 kings and I, I'm not quite sure how many queens, two or three queens. Mm. Um, uh, that's their final resting place, you know. So yes, when I, I mean... It's very much the final resting place of of the modern royal family, isn't it? Um, oh, yeah, well, because you know, they're no longer interring people in Westminster Abbey. But we've got some we've got some medieval and Tudor folk there, as you point out as well. Well, when I when I when I found Charles Brandon's tomb, which in itself is fascinating, because um, he he is within touching distance of Henry the Sixth, and then 
um, a stone's throw from his mate um, Henry VIII. (laughs) And both of them, Henry VIII wanted a a spectacularly grand uh, memorial, which he didn't get. And uh, Charles Brandon wanted a very modest one, and he's got a prime place of honour, really. So it's funny how it works out, isn't it? That it just shows it doesn't matter who you are, you don't get much say really at the end. No, you don't. It's in the hands of other people, isn't it, really, ultimately? Uh, so, yeah. Well, what, what I did last time I visited, I went, I went into St George's Chapel, did the full tour twice, came out the exit and said to my wife, I hope you don't mind, but you know what we're going to do now? And she said, yeah, we're going to go round the outside and back in the front door again, which is exactly what we did. Because it's just too much to absorb, you know. It's a bit like, a bit like Westminster Abbey. Um, it's just too mind-boggling. You look at your feet and you've got Charles Darwin at Westminster Abbey and things like that. Well, it's much the same as St George's Chapel. Yeah, just much more intimate. I just love the architecture there. The kind of fan vaulted well, ceiling is it's just exquisite. It's the definition of gothic, isn't it? But um, I picked my moment and I actually uh, befriended one of the guides and I told him I was writing about Charles Brandon. And he let me actually, uh, he showed me where the Charles Brandon seat is in, in the um, mm-hmm. Garter stalls. And... Mm. Um, I could actually put my hand on the very seat where Charles Brandon would have sat so often. And that's a real connection. When, you, when you're living with a character and learning everything about them and writing about their life over the course of three books, which is quite, that's three years of my life, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, to actually have that connection is amazing. Yeah, thrilling. Really unique and special and thrilling. You know, before we move on from sort of uh, St George's Chapel, is there anything else there, or indeed in the castle itself, that you'd just like to bring to our attention before maybe yeah, we talk uh, about some of your other top tips? There is so much. I mean, just just so finally on St George's Chapel, um, a lot of people might not know if they don't have the audio tour or they just go in and out. If you look up above to the side of the altar, is um, Catherine of Aragon's window they call it it's like a a wooden sort of viewing gallery which was also used by queen victoria when she used to attend services there and uh, i just find it so amazing because you almost expect to see catherine of aragon peeping out from there you know (laughs) and uh, it's it's almost as it was when she used it don't you find that mind-boggling? I but do find that mind-boggling. And the thing I always think of, I, I, I'm pretty sh- I think I'm correct when I say I think Catherine Parr, did she watch the burial of Henry VIII from that That's right. gallery? That's right. There's, it's just, it's almost more history than even I can cope with. There's a real danger when you're walking around the State Departments that you could actually miss a very rare artwork by somebody like Leonardo or Michelangelo or Rembrandt because the Royal Collection Trust rotate um, works of art uh, periodically and some of these things uh, people have never seen in for real they've only seen pictures of them because they although some go on tour like there's a tour at um, Greenwich at the moment um Quite a lot of them are just hidden away in Windsor Castle. So unless you actually go there and keep your eyes and keep your wits about you, um, you could miss them. 
Yeah, indeed. Good, good, good tip. Now, on a very practical level, obviously, we've talked about things people must go and see and look out for. Are there any other visitor tips about getting to Windsor Castle or yeah, you know, making see. the most of the visit? I would say Windsor is a nightmare to park in any time of the year. Uh, you can park if you're prepared to pay like £10 an hour or something like that, <laughs> yeah. then fine. Yeah, the council will be very appreciative of that. But if you're a bit stingy like me, um, one of the best options is if you're actually in London, the train, there's two two railway stations in Windsor, and the train from London, uh, I go from Paddington, but uh, you can go from either. It's about half an hour. Mm. And another another good tip is to stay in the hotels in in Windsor are quite expensive in the in the season, obviously, and um, you can stay quite cheaply in Old Windsor, and then there's a shuttle bus that would deliver you to the door, to the to the door to the gates of Windsor Castle, <laughs> which takes about ten minutes, and so leave the car behind, and uh, if you can afford it, uh, then you can. Uh, seek out a hotel which actually has parking. That's a clever idea. Mm. And there are quite a few of those within walking distance of the castle. So there's a few ideas. But the main thing to remember is that um, it's a working castle. So while we're recording this, for example, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel is visiting the Queen at Windsor Castle today. And... um, I've no idea how much impact that will have on visitors, if any, but sometimes uh, it can because they enhance the security, they restrict access to parts of the site. You know, there's all sorts of things go on because sometimes they have cavalcades and um, where where they have like loads of cars all Mm. lined up, things like that. And um, because of uh, the pandemic, because of COVID, at the moment, the only real way to do it is to book tickets online, and they're they're restricted and timed, and it's um, closed. It's only open um, five days a week, so it's closed uh, two days a week, and also um, so it's Tuesdays and Wednesdays. It's currently closed, so. Uh, that helps focus your mind. It you does, to, yes. <laughs> you need to look and uh, make sure if you – I've talked about St. George's Chapel. That is a fully functioning church, of course, and uh, one of the most impressive Gothic churches in, in the UK. And so Sundays it has church services. Now, interestingly, if you're somebody that would like to attend a service, that can be arranged. So you might actually seek out to go there and see it in being used in its proper purpose. Um, but if, like me, you want to spend ages um, studying the tombs and things like that, then you want to avoid the services. And they don't just happen on Sundays. So a little bit of research is a really good idea. So what we can do, we have a show notes page associated with this podcast. So I'll put a link to the Windsor Castle website just in case anybody anybody oh, out there yes, needs a, a direct idea. link. And then yeah. you can check out some of those things for yourself. That would be the way to go, don't you think, Tony? While, while you're putting links on, there is actually a St. George's Windsor.org website, which has got a 360 degree virtual tour of the choir. 
And I recommend that for people to, to look at before they visit. And also, um, if there are quite a few books um, which are worth studying beforehand. The, the one that I've got in my hand at the moment, which I recommend, is uh, the official illustrated history of Windsor Castle, which you can get on Amazon for out of Fiverr, but it's um, John Martin Robinson. And, of course, this is full of things that you could make a note of that you might want to actually try and see and um, can save you um, what quite often happens to me is it's only when you get home and look at the, the guidebook that you bought that you realise there's something major that you completely missed. Oh, absolutely. I do that all the time. And in a way, <laughs> that's what inspired me and Natalie to write in the Footsteps books. And I just want to say for those Anne Boleyn fans out there who've not heard me go on about this a lot, the uh, Garter Throne Room was the place that Anne Boleyn was invested as Marquess of Pembroke. And that still stands today, although the interiors oh, yes. are greatly changed. And I was, I was just Oh, my goodness. When I first realized that and I went to Windsor for the first time and just like you touched Brandon's uh, yeah. you know, uh, garter chair, yeah. I just stood there like with my mouth open, just thinking, I can't believe I'm standing in this room. Well, when you are writing about them, it's so helpful because to have a sense of the even the acoustics of a building and a room, mm. you know, and <laughs> the geography of it and the proximity of the River Thames. And you understand then why the castle was built where it is, because it's such a good defensive position overlooking the river mm. and sort of on the, um, you know, uh, approaches to London. Mm. Absolutely. So High up on that sort of plateau of, right. of rock. I mean, you know, you mentioned anything else to, to see. Um, a good tip, one of my top tips, is to take a break halfway through. The The changing of the guard is at 11 o'clock, and all of the coach tours make a point of turning up for that. So that's the bit where I, I do a runner, and, and um, <laughs> you can be kind of stamped out. I don't know if they still do that with COVID, but um, when I was there last, you can you can be allowed out. Uh -huh. With the promise to be allowed back in again. Mm. So I avoid the crowds. I, I'm not too bothered about seeing the changing of the guard once you've seen it once. And I go across to Nell Gwynne's tea room oh, in, yes. um, in Church Street. Do you know it? I do know yeah. it, yes. It's directly opposite the Henry VIII gate, That's isn't right. it? Yeah. That's right. And, um, you know, uh, I haven't got shares in it or anything, but the, it's, it's my... Um, ideal place for a cup of tea and a slice of cake or something like that <laughs> and of course it's so close to the castle that it's just a little break and then you can go back in and do it all again yes there's no, there's no history day out complete without a cup of tea and a slice of cake Tony <laughs> I'm glad to hear you bringing that in it's one of my favorite things I've, I've found um you know <laughs> The tea rooms in the Tower of London, for example, aren't half as nice as, as you think they might be, whereas there are lots of nice little places within an easy walk of the Tower, for example, yes. and it's the same with Windsor Castle. Yeah. Um, it's nice to see a little bit of Windsor. And, of course, Nell Gwynne's tea rooms have got their own history as well. <laughs> yep, history is everywhere. So 
Um, I think that probably brings us to the end of our chat, Winds Castle. Thank you so much for sharing all your sort of top tips for visiting. I hope some of your listeners out there, you've been inspired and you have some things to focus on when you next go. But before we go, Tony, I do want to ask, how can people follow you, get in touch with you, find your books? Yeah, well, all my books are on Amazon. Most of them have um, uh, ebook, paperback, audiobook editions. And um, so you just type in Tony Riches, R-I-C-H-E-S, into Amazon. It's, they're available in 13 countries. And my website is uh, TonyRiches.com, where there's trailers and excerpts and reviews and all of my books with links and stuff like that. And as I said, um, I'm just on the third book of my Elizabethan series about Walter Raleigh. And uh, my last book, which is about Robert Devereux, um, it's called Essex Tudor Rebel. And that's doing, I'm really pleased to say it's doing extremely well because most people don't know anything much about beyond the, the, the obvious about Robert Devereux. And he had such a fascinating life. And um, so I'm pleased with that. Well, well done. Well done. And I'm probably one of those people. But once, um, I, once I've finished this one, I'm, I'm so intrigued by Elizabeth ladies that I've chosen three of Elizabeth's ladies to write about. So that's going to be the story continues, basically. I was so going to ask it, you what happens next, and thank you for telling us. <laughs> so, so my life is mapped out for the next four years <laughs> in terms of I do, I write one book a year, you see. Yeah, and very um, disciplined, Tony. Take lots of lots of Elizabethan places I want to visit if I can. Oh, well, there's plenty of those. So you really do have your hands full. Uh, so good luck with that, and thank you, thank you so much for. Um, being part of the show today it's, and sharing It's great your... to be invited and thank you very much. Oh, have you're a welcome. good day. I'll see you around, Tony, and we can stand somewhere together and just, you know, Definitely. blissfully soak yeah. up the history. <laughs> thank you very much. So now we come to the third part of today's show, and this is where I share with you some of my top recommendations for Tudor-themed events that you can get involved in. Now, Today, in this particular episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show, Travel Essentials, I'm going to be sharing three events and all of these are actually taking place in person. So you will have to be here in the UK to make the most of them. And the first of those is the ever popular jousting at Hever Castle. So this is called Tudor Tales and Jousting at Hever Castle. And this takes place very short, very shortly, actually, on the 28th and 29th of July. And this is your opportunity to step back in time and experience a living history display and what it was really like to live in Tudor, England. And in amongst that, you have the jousting, which, as I say, is incredibly popular. That's going to be in full swing. And not only can you enjoy the tournament, you can also watch Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn in procession from the castle forecourt to the arena. It's always a tremendous amount of fun. Now, the two living history encampments that are on site are there from 11 in the morning till half past five in the afternoon. And you can expect 
also around the grounds to be enjoying archery, a falconry, and there's even a lute player in the castle. Oh, that would be my favourite. I could stand there forever and listen to the lute being played inside Hever Castle. Mm -mm -mm, delicious. Anyway, if you want to get tickets, and of course in this COVID age, pretty much everything is ticketed and controlled, then do check out the Hever Castle events page. And as ever, there'll be a link in the show notes associated with this podcast. And that goes for the other two events that we have. And the next one is another Tudor reenactment day. Of course, the reenactment season is in full swing. So even if you can't make it this year, if you are planning to come to the UK next year, do bear in mind that really from May to September, uh, particularly during the months of July and August, there are a lot of Tudor reenactment events going around at various different uh, Tudor-related locations. Now, this particular one, I have a personal involvement with. It's um, the Tudor Day at Basing House in Hampshire. Now, this was the site, of course, of the original Basing House owned by um, Sir William Paulette and Marquess of Winchester. And although there are only uh, groundworks and ruins now, once every year there is a Tudor Day and you will enjoy some Tudor reenactment. Uh, there is likely to be some music. There will be some other Tudor crafts on display. And there may well be, and I'm not sure this year, but there may well be some falconry. There often is. Now that's taking place on Sunday, the 25th of July from about 11am through to the end of the afternoon. And... If you are in the vicinity, do come along. You will see yours truly in my full resplendent Tudor glory, along with some of my other fellow reenactors. Again, best to check out the website to see if you need to book your timed ticket in advance. I suspect that that is the case. Link in the show notes. Then finally, a slightly different event that's going on in London. Now, this is a, a day of Tudor celebration. It's called Tudor Queens, the heart and stomach of a king. And it's a day of talks at Southwark Cathedral. So that's on the South Bank. And we have talks from Alison Weir, Sarah Gristwood, Elizabeth Norton, and Siobhan Clark. And you can pick up your tickets, which are £18 per ticket, uh, from Eventbrite. Again, link in show notes. And that event is taking place in August. So that's the 14th of August from 10 o'clock in the morning, the first talk with Alison Weir, going through the day till five o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, well, as I say, this is all live and kicking at the moment. Um, restrictions are being lifted here. We're hoping that I think it's July the 19th all uh, social distancing restrictions, etc., will be lifted here in the UK. And so, yes, I guess it's a summer of hopefully, as I've said before, being out and about and enjoying ourselves. And my goodness, do we all deserve it after the last 18 months. And as I have said before, if you can't quite make it here yet because of um, quarantine restrictions here in the UK, then we are really looking forward to be able to seeing you back here just as soon as is possible and I will keep you up to date with all the events that are occurring throughout the year. So hopefully if you are planning a trip you can add something else that just makes that just makes it just that little bit more special. 
Okay, well, with that, we are coming to the end of July's Travel Essentials show. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I will look forward to seeing you next month in August. So until then, my friends, keep well wherever you are in the world. And of course, it's happy time traveling. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Now remember, if you've enjoyed the show, please do like, rate and subscribe to this podcast to spread the Tudor love. Until next time... 